Welcome to the College Park Church of Christ Sermon Series Podcast. This sermon was recorded at the College Park Church of Christ in the Conroe Porter area. Join us for worship on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday at 7 p.m. Thanks for studying the Word of God with us. Uh, But I believe truly that as we look into the evidences from science, we see that Christianity and the Bible and science are all complementary pieces that work together. And I hope as we go through this study tonight that you will see that as well. So this is a reminder of the roadmap that we're looking at through this series. So we've looked at two uh, sessions so far. We looked at, is the Bible textually reliable? And we concluded that, yes, it has been properly and accurately uh, translated into our language uh, and, and carried over into this century. And so we can rely on it. And we looked last time at, is the Bible really prophetic? And we looked at Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled and including many prophecies of Christ that we see not only fulfilled in the New Testament, but also backed up by secular history. And so the Bible truly is a book of prophecy. It's a reliable book. And as we'll look at tonight, it is a book that is supported by scientific evidence. There's a passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, where the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. Paul is warning Timothy to warn others about taking heed to false science. This word science here simply means knowledge, and it's put here in the King James as science. It means knowledge. That's what ultimately we want our science to be, right? It's knowledge. This is stuff that we have, have hypothesized about and then experimented about, and we have confirmed that this is knowledge. But Paul is saying there is science, there's knowledge out there that's false, that's wrong. And there's people, unfortunately, that professing it have erred concerning the faith. And we can see this today in many of the mainstream scientific beliefs regarding the the origin of the universe and the origin of life on earth. We can see science telling us a story that's different and saying that there is knowledge and science that supports things that's different than what the Bible says. And so one of the main points of controversy that we're going to look at tonight is the very first verse of the first book of those 66 in the Bible that says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And you live in a time period today where many mainstream scientists say, this is not true. God is not real, not necessary for the earth and the universe to be here. And so we're going to look at this and we're going to start with that argument given to us by the late uh, Dr. Stephen Hawking, and in, it, this was in his book, The Grand Design, that came out in 2010. He said this, The universe began with the Big Bang, which simply followed the inevitable laws of physics. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist. The universe didn't need a god to begin. It was quite capable of launching its existence on its own. And so one of the most renowned scientists of our more modern age said in his book in 2010, God is not necessary for us to exist and for us to be here. In fact, we don't need God because the universe is capable of launching itself into existence. Now, there's a couple of things that I want to notice. We're going to read some responses to this. We're going to go through some, some logical arguments for this, but I just want us to pay attention to a couple of things. One, he says, because there is a law such as gravity... The universe can and will create itself from nothing, all right? If before you have a universe, you have the law of gravity that exists that then allows the universe to create itself, that tells me that something existed before the universe, which still leaves us with the exact same question, 
of where did the very, very first thing ever that ever existed come from. And then secondly, he, he uses the phrase a couple of times, a couple of different ways. It creates itself, launches its existence on its own. I don't pretend to be nearly as intelligent or educated or knowledgeable in the areas of science that Dr. Hawking was, but I can tell you that all of the evidence that I'm going to show you tonight and that I've ever seen in my life says that nothing can launch itself or create itself. That everything that we see around us is subject to being started or created by some other means. And we're going to show that tonight. So just as a reminder, an overview of the Big Bang Theory, because we're going to be talking about this. The Big Bang Theory seeks to track the history of the universe starting from its existence as a singularity, a quantum singularity that was densely packed with all of the matter and energy that exists in the universe today. Now, here's a misnomer. Many people believe that the Big Bang Theory is actually the theory of how everything got started. It's not really, really what the Big Bang Theory is, is it's seeking to track the history of the starting point where we are now and explain that but nobody even the mainstream scientists that deny god today still have come to a uniform conclusion as to what started at all and we'll talk more about that as we go according to the mathematical models and formulas developed by scientists researching the origin of the universe they will say the age of the universe is about 14 billion years old similarly they will claim that the earth itself is about four and a half billion years old and then i don't have this one up there but they will say that we through the revolution have gotten here in about 600 million years or so. Now, this directly conflicts, obviously, with the creation story that we find in Genesis, which dates the Earth and universe around six to 7,000 years old. So these are some of the issues that we're going to be dealing with as we go through. Now, I want to ask this question. Is science and religion incompatible? So what we hear sometimes about them being uh, contradictory, I believe is untrue, and it's a misrepresentation. I want to show you some stats. So there have been a lot of surveys throughout the years done on the scientific community and the scientists themselves belief in a higher power, a deity, a god. In 1914, one of those surveys said that 42% of scientists believed in God or a higher power and 42% did not. So 1914, a little over 100 years ago, it was split about in half. 1996, there was a survey conducted by Edward Larson. He found that 40% of scientists believe in God or a higher power. 45 did not. That's pretty close to that same 42-42 uh, split. And then in 2009, the Pew Research Center did another survey, and they found that over half of scientists, 51%, believe in some form of deity or higher power, while 41% said they did not. Now, this was interesting to me because I would have thought, without looking at these stats, that this would have been lower, that we would have probably progressed into even more, a higher percentage of the scientists not believing in a higher power, but that's not true according to this Pew Research survey in 2009, over half of the scientists out there do believe in a higher power. Now, how many of you, and I don't want you to actually answer this question, but how many of you, when you think about scientists or hear about science and religion, are hearing from this half of the scientific community? Almost everything that's pushed out in front of us in the media comes from the half that doesn't believe in God, and that would include the late Dr. Stephen Hawking. But I just want us to recognize the reality that it's not a situation where 99% of all scientists believe that God's not real and we're just in the minority. The reality is there are many, many scientists that do believe in God. I also want to share some famous historical scientists with you, and I'm not going to go through all of these and the details about their lives, but I just want you to recognize that some very, very famous scientists throughout history that brought 
uh, that basically laid the foundation for all of the modern science that we do today believed in God. That includes Copernicus, who was an astronomer, and he was kind of the first to introduce a sun-centric uh, solar system, Sir Francis Bacon, who actually popularized the scientific method that's still used today, and he was a believer in God, Galileo. Uh, looked through his telescope into the stars, made a lot of astonishing discoveries, believed in God. Isaac Newton uh, discovered gravity, right? We have the, the anecdote about the apple falling on his head. Uh, he, he established the law of universal gravitation. He also invented calculus. So if you've ever had taken calculus and hated it, uh, blame Isaac Newton for that. But he was a believer in God. Even Albert Einstein, who's more recent, he died in 1955, uh, of the modern age, considered one of the most brilliant minds, he also believed in a God. And there's several quotes uh, that I don't have on the screen, but Google Albert Einstein quotes related to God. And there's some fascinating ones where essentially he's saying, the more I study science, the more I believe there's a God and things of that nature. So I, I want us to recognize right off the bat that science and religion are not incompatible. Science and the Bible are not incompatible. Many, many famous, brilliant people throughout the ages have believed in God. So let's look at a case for creation. Obviously, we know Genesis 1, 1 through 3 tells us that God created it all. So let's talk about some evidences for that. First of all is the law of cause and effect. And I referenced this already, that we believe that everything around us has a cause or a start. There is a reason for what exists. Now, I don't know how well you can see this graph or not, but this is kind of a representation of what we are talking about in the what the Big Bang is trying to track. So the Big Bang is not really trying to track what happens here because no one really knows and can explain what actually ignited what they call the Big Bang. But the Big Bang Theory says at some point there was a massive expansion, not an explosion, but a massive expansion from a quantum singularity that contained all of the matter and energy that exists today, but it was packed into a tiny, tiny little singularity that we wouldn't be able to see. And then it was activated and rapidly expanded, and then over the next 14 billion years we get what we have now. So the question is, what started it? Well, scientists have come to the conclusion now that the universe does indeed have a beginning. Now, this wasn't always the case. In fact, mainstream science taught that the universe itself was eternal and has always existed there for a while because that's an easy way to explain away the law of cause and effect. If the universe had no beginning and it's always existed, well, then there didn't have to be anything to start it. However, science itself has disproved that. And so Alexander Vilenkin, he's a professor of physics and director of the Institute of Cosmology at Tufts University, he said all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. Okay, so the cosmological argument goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause, right? We recognize that. If the universe did begin to exist, as all the science says, then the universe has a cause. There is something that started everything. Now, is it the law of gravity? Is the law of gravity somehow eternal? Has it always existed? Uh, there are some scientists believe that there have always been universes, that our universe isn't eternal, but at the collapse of the last universe, our universe was sprouted, and at the collapse of our universe, another universe will sprout. There are some scientists be that believe in the multiverse, that there are an infinite number of universes that exist right now, and there are an infinite number of Timothys, and we're all doing potentially different things all at this moment. And that when two of those universes collide, that uh, it can ignite or, or spark a new universe to be created. And that's how we got here. Even through all of those theories, you still have to go, okay, well, how did the first one get here? You still have to ask that basic question. And that's the question that people have so much trouble answering. 
and finding a good reasonable explanation for. I believe a reasonable explanation is that there was something and is something that existed before everything else that we see. And I believe that that's an almighty God. You know, and the scripture says in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It makes perfect sense because if the universe is not eternal, nothing else that we've ever witnessed or seen in this physical universe can be said to be eternal. There has to be something outside of this universe that's eternal. And I ask you, what is that something? How can you explain it? Somebody says, well, you know, it's aliens from another galaxy that planted life. Here. Well, that doesn't explain how the universe got here. There still had to be some way that the aliens got there first. Understand my point. We have to go back to that same basic question, what started it all? And I'll submit to you that you will come to the conclusion, whether it is God or not, that there has to be something or someone that has always existed, that does not have a beginning and does not have an end. Something that exists outside of the universe, that it, in fact the universe exists inside of, so to speak, and only exists because of that eternal thing or someone. And I'll submit to you that it's God. All the evidence says that it's God. You know, we think about the law of cause and effect. Everything that we see from day to day is subject to this cause. Would these scientists who try to explain away the beginning of the universe, would they argue that out of nothing, suddenly in their driveway, a cosmic explosion, a rapid expansion occurred, and they've got a brand new Porsche sitting in the driveway. All of the pieces just exploded together, and they happened to land just right so that the Porsche drives, and the keys happen to be right there sitting in the ignition. They can turn it on, get in their car, and drive away. Would any of these scientists ever say that they've witnessed something like that? That's absurd. None of us have ever seen a car appear out of thin air. None of us have ever seen anything designed like a structure, a house. Just suddenly an explosion happens and there's a house. You know what normally happens with a rapid expansion or what we might call an explosion? Ever seen an explosion cause something to be built? Yet that's exactly essentially the argument that they're making when they try to ignore this cause and effect law. So I want to encourage you not to be fooled by theories being promoted by superior, uh, by supposedly superior thinkers, but allow the logic to infiltrate our minds to say everything that we see, in effect, it has a cause, and the same thing is true for the universe, and that cause must be God. Now we think about universal law and order. There are universal laws that we see day to day. You know, Gravity remains consistent, and it has remained consistent my entire life. There've never, there's never been a situation that I've been in where suddenly gravity didn't exist. And yes, I know that there are astronauts that go into space, and there's anti-gravity technology and stuff now, but gravity is constant. The law of gravity is always there. If I drop this clicker right now, you know what it's going to do? I bet 100% of you will know what it's going to do. It's not going to levitate here and shake in front of you. You know what it's going to do? It's going to hit the ground because of gravity. And if I pick it up a hundred times and I drop it a hundred times, it's going to hit the ground a hundred times. We recognize that there are universal laws like gravity that exist and that are constant. A hot cup of coffee left on the counter. You ever left a hot cup of coffee on the counter, forgot about it, come back three hours later, what's happened to that hot cup of coffee? It's cold. It's not hot anymore. If you've ever come back and it's hot, then you keep your house entirely too warm. It goes cold every single time. Not one time do you just randomly come back three hours later and it's still boiling hot. That doesn't make sense. There are universal laws that control these things. The Earth rotates in the same 24 hours. The speed of light does not change on Earth or in galaxies far from us. Everything is calculated, mathematical, 
consistent in this universe? How is it that we can identify these laws of nature that never change? Why is the universe so orderly and so reliable? Richard Feynman, who is a Nobel Prize winner in uh, quantum electrodynamics, said, why nature is mathematical is a mystery. The fact that there are rules at all is a kind of miracle. You've got scientists that are looking at these things, these universal laws, these calculations, this mathematics, and they're going, we really don't know why it's so orderly. It's really a kind of miracle. We don't really understand why it is, but it is. John Lennox, he's a professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford. He is responding in this quote to the Stephen Hawking quote that we read at the beginning about the law of gravity allowing the universe to create itself. And he said, the world of strict naturalism in which clever mathematical laws all by themselves bring the universe and life into existence is pure science fiction. Theories and laws do not bring matter and energy into existence. And John Lennox is a well-renowned scientist uh, and mathematician who is a Christian apologist as well. And he states what you and I recognize as logic this evening, that a law of gravity cannot bring the universe into existence. And even if it can, why would gravity exist pre the universe unless there was someone or something there to allow that gravity to be there? Now, as we move forward, we look at Jeremiah 33 and verse 25. Thus saith the Lord, if my covenant be not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth. You know why there, there are universal laws that we see? Because there's a lawgiver. You know what an ordinance is? It's a law. There's a lawgiver that has ordained laws over this earth and this universe. And we are subject to those laws because of the lawgiver that has given them. I want you to think about the fine-tuning of the earth for a moment. By fine-tuning, we mean there are so many elements that have to be exactly right in order for the earth to sustain life like yours and mine. One of those is the earth's size. I want you to think about that. The earth's size and corresponding gravity holds a thin layer of mostly nitrogen and oxygen gases, we would call this the atmosphere. It extends about 50 miles above the earth's surface. Now, if the earth were any smaller, an atmosphere would, would be impossible, much like the planet Mercury. If the earth were any larger, its atmosphere would contain free hydrogen like the planet Jupiter. Earth is the only known planet equipped with an atmosphere of the right mixture of gases to sustain plant, animal, and human life. And yet science would say, mainstream science as anti-God would say, all of this happened by chance. That that rapid expansion, the Big Bang, somehow resulted in an amazing planet that can sustain life like ours. But we also look at some other factors, the distance from the sun. Did you know that the Earth is located at exactly the right distance from the sun? Think about the temperature swings that, in, that we encounter here on this planet, uh, roughly a negative 30 to 120 plus degrees, depending on where you are on the globe. Now, if the Earth were, were even fractionally farther away from the sun, we would all freeze to death. And if we were fractionally any closer to the sun, we would all burn to death. But we have a very, very, very tiny window of temperature that allows us to not only live, but to thrive. And the Earth rotates around the sun at exactly the right distance to allow that to happen. But not only that, the Earth rotates. While maintaining that perfect distance around the sun, it rotates around the sun at a, a speed of nearly 67,000 miles per hour. It's also rotating on its axis, which allows the entire surface of the Earth to be properly warmed and cooled day. And so think about all of those factors. We're exactly the right size. We're exactly the right distance from the sun. 
were uh, speeding around the sun at 67,000 miles per hour, rotating on the axis so that all of the surfaces of the Earth can be properly warmed and cooled. And not only that, we have a moon that orbits around the Earth that is the perfect size and perfect distance from us so that its gravitational pull will control ocean tides and movements so that ocean waters don't sit there and stagnate, but they also don't come crashing across the continents, destroying all life. The moon controls those things. And so I've mentioned only these four, but I want you to consider what are the chances that all of these things are just so perfect and it's only four and we could keep listing and listing and listing the number of universe and earth-related fine-tuning that has to take place in order for us to have life. Yet that's exactly what we see. Is it more likely that that happened as a result of a rapid expansion and explosion 14 billion years ago that nobody can even explain how it even happened? Or that there's a designer that created this perfect planet for you and I to live on and to thrive on? Paul Davies is a physicist, cosmologist, and astrobiologist. He said, scientists are slowly waking up to an inconvenient truth. The universe looks suspiciously like a fix. The, the issue concerns the very laws of nature themselves. For 40 years, physicists and cosmologists have been quietly collecting samples of, uh, examples of all too convenient coincidences and special features in the underlying laws of the universe that seem to be necessary in order for life and hence conscious beings to exist. Change any one of them and the consequences would be lethal. And he's talking about this fine-tuning argument. The reality is there are so many different factors. Change one of them, we're dead. We can't exist. And yet all of them are so perfectly aligned to allow us to thrive. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And I believe that. I believe when I look at this earth and this universe, I look at the law of cause and effect, I look at the other universal laws that exist and why it's so mathematical and consistent, I see the glory of God in that. I see a designer in that. I see the evidence pointing towards someone or something has to have existed outside of all this in order to start all this. That aligns exactly with the story that the Bible tells about a loving God that created us and ultimately, of course, would send his son to die for us. And we look at this world and we can see that glory and that handy. We think about the age of the earth. We mentioned that science would say that it's 14 billion years old. The Bible, we would say it's about six to 7,000 years old using dating from uh, the people that lived, as we can track that through Scripture. I want us to think about a couple of things related to the age of the earth, because this is what gets people sometimes as they think about the, the age argument, the old age uh, of the earth or universe argument, and even Christians sometimes struggle to understand how is it that the earth can really only be six to 7,000 years old. So I want to mention just a couple of things, and unfortunately we just don't have time to go in-depth in all of these things. But one of the pieces of evidence that I want you to think about is the assumption problem that is used in science of believing in uniformitarianism. Now, uniformitarianism basically is saying that same natural laws and processes that we see today have always happened across the entire universe for all time. In other words, if we can track the rate of uh, sediment that is, uh, that is carried by a river and begins to build up and we can track that now, then we believe that for all of history, sediment has been deposited at that exact rate. And so all of the things that we evaluate in science today over the past 100 or 200 years in this modern scientific era, we are extrapolating out as scientists, believing that it has always been constant. And that's not 
an assumption that you can make realistically because there's no way to go and actually observe whether those things have always been uniform. One example of things not being uniform that we see is Noah's flood. As we think about the flood and the biblical narrative of the flood, a cataclysmic worldwide global flood would have dramatically changed the things that we see on earth. But science doesn't take that into account. They would have us believe that the same rate of things that we see now has always existed. Okay, so part of it's an assumption problem. Part of it is there's some dating issues. You've probably heard about Mount St. Helens in 1980. This was a, a volcano that erupted. And in 1992, 12 years later, there was an anonymous sample that was submitted of the volcanic rock that was actually formed in 1980 from the eruption at Mount St. Helens. And it was submitted for potassium argon testing, which is the dating method that's widely used in geology circles. The results of this test of 12-year-old volcanic rock was that it was somewhere, somewhere between 340,000 to 2.8 million years old. That's what the lab said. Using current modern dating methods, this rock is somewhere... First of all, I want us to recognize 340,000 to 2.8 million is a big span. So even that is not super accurate. But secondly, it's 12 years old. We know it's 12 years old. We know exactly when it was formed. And yet the dating methods are saying that it's ridiculously older than that. So I would submit to you, if a known rock that's 12 years old comes out as 3 million years old, how can we truly trust the dates that are being presented on so many other things? There's also been some other finds that are very interesting. Soft tissue found in fossils. Dr. Mary Schweitzer discovered blood vessels, cells, tissue, and the protein collagen preserved inside the fossilized femur bone of a T-Rex, of a dinosaur that supposedly went extinct over 65 million years ago. Now, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, that's impossible. It's impossible if 65 million years ago was the last time we had dinosaurs for there to still be dinosaur bones that have soft tissue in them that can be found. It's impossible, and yet that's verifiable scientific data that says dinosaurs probably existed a whole lot closer to us than 65 million years. The Bible presents all animals having been created at the same time, essentially, as man. And man and dinosaur would have coexisted, according to Scripture. Evidence of a catastrophic flood. We've mentioned that. Uh, there's a lot of these pieces of evidence we could go through. We just simply don't have time to. But the, looking at the sediment rock layers, uh, there have been marine fossils, fish fossils found in mountaintops. There are poly, uh, polystrate fossils, which basically mean a fossil that is uh, straddling two different sediment layers. So it's in both. And so again, if you think it takes hundreds of thousands of years for a sediment layer to form, you've got to assume that the monkey or the fish or whatever animal it was, was just sitting there and not degrading for hundreds of thousands of years to allow that next layer to start. I'm just going to sit here and wait. Or something else happened that very, very quickly brought that sediment in and you've got animals that are trapped between different layers of rock over time and fossilized. Uh, great flood stories that exist in almost nearly every culture. How is that possible if there was not some worldwide cataclysmic flood? Why would almost every country or every culture across the world have some mythology or story about a great flood if there wasn't some root of truth within that? And then finally, I want us to think about the fact that God created a mature universe. I'm going to illustrate that this way. I want you to imagine that we had a time travel machine. We brought a scientist, a biologist, 
back to 30 seconds after Adam and Eve were created. Or let's just say Adam. How long of the time between Adam and Eve? We don't know. Let's say Adam, 30 seconds. We know that Adam is 30 seconds years old. We bring that biologist back and we say, how old is this human being? He would have looked at Adam and probably said, 20, 25 years, however old you believe Adam looked. He was an adult. He was formed as an adult, as a fully mature human being. And that scientist would have said, this man is 25 years old. And we would have said, actually, he's 30 seconds. Why does he look 25 years old? Because God created him fully formed and mature. And if we can understand that concept, why do we struggle to understand the idea that God has created the universe, earth, and everything around us in a fully mature state? So that when someone looks out into the heavens and they say, well, if the light from that star so many light years away, billions and trillions of miles away is actually reaching us, well, that means it has to have existed for that long in order for the light to get here, right? Except that God created a fully mature universe. So even as we look out, as that scientist would have looked at Adam and said he's 25 years old, a scientist can look at this universe and go, well, if it takes that long for the light to get here, then the universe must be. We're missing the point that God created it this way, us to enjoy and for him to be glorified. And to me, that's the simplest and easiest way to understand why it is that there are some elements of evidence that seem to indicate the earth is incredibly old, because that is how God created it for us. Atheism, Dr. Alistair McGrath said, I began to realize, rested on a less than satisfactory evidential basis. The arguments that had once seemed bold, decisive, and conclusive increasingly turned out to be circular, tentative, and uncertain. Dr. McGrath is a former atheist scientist who became an outspoken theologian and apologist based upon evidence that he himself was a witness to. Now let's talk for a few minutes about the evidence for created life. We understand that if science says the Big Bang you know, is tracking the start of everything, well, at some point, human beings come into the equation through evolution. In the last 600, year, or 600 million years or so, science would say, we have been evolving. Well, this uh, is contrary to what the Bible says as well. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. I believe that God created you and I as people. So we want to look at another scientific law. This is the law of biogenesis. The law of biogenesis is the observation that living things come only from other living things. By reproduction, a spider lays eggs, which develops into or spiders. That is, life does not arise from non-living material. Now, I love it on the one hand that we even have to have a law that tells us the things that we intuitively see and recognize that life only comes from life. But there is a scientific law that says life only comes from life, and yet we have still got scientists that are saying life has evolved out of non-living material, that at some point 600 million years ago, there was a primordial soup, and the right chemicals happened to combine, and maybe lightning struck it or whatever, and it sparked the first single-cell organism that then over time evolved into all of the different animals and human beings that we have today. The reality is that has never been seen or shown to even be possible in any scenario that's ever been examined. Now, this uh, law of biogenesis was established by a man named Louis Pasteur in 1864 after he did a series of experiments attempting pr to provoke spontaneous generation. In other words, he was trying to disprove this. He was trying to get life to spontaneously uh, it generates, but he failed to do so. And in obtaining the results, he said spontaneous generation is a 
dream. Not possible. Not real. Ever since then, the law of biogenesis has held up. Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz, an evolutionist and professor of anthropology, says it was and still is the case that with the exception of Dabansky's claim about a new species of fruit fly, the formation of a new species by any mechanism has never been observed. Now, we can talk about Dabansky. He was a geneticist from the 30s. Uh, that did a lot of work with fruit flies, and he believed if the conditions were right, he theorized that a new species of fruit fly could form. None of that's ever been witnessed or shown or seen. And so Dr. Schwartz's point is this, and this is not a Christian apologist, this is an evolutionist that's saying we still have not seen or observed any new species forming by any mechanism. Dr. Leslie Orgel, also another evolutionist and chemistry professor, uh, after noting that neither proteins nor nucleic acids could have arisen without the other, said one might have to conclude that life could never, in fact, have originated by chemical means. And so we've, we've actually got some candid quotes by evolutionists who are not trying to prove Christianity or God or anything of that sort, but that are going, the evidence doesn't really show that life could have started this way. And then Paul Davies, who's a physicist, cosmologist, and astrobiologist, he said, uh, many investigators feel uneasy stating in public that the origin of life is a mystery, even though behind closed doors they admit that they are baffled. So the point that I want to make with these quotes is that a lot, these aren't the quotes that we see in media. These aren't the quotes that are, that are pushed as an agenda. These aren't the quotes that we see passed around on Facebook. What we see are the quotes that say, oh, God's not necessary. He's not real. The universe can create itself from nothing. When in reality, many, many scientists are looking at this evidence and going, hard to see how life could have ever started through this concept of evolution that's taught today. Francis Crick, a biochemist and spiritual skeptic who shared the Nobel Prize for discovering the molecular structure of DNA, that an honest man armed with all the knowledge available to us now could only state that in some sense, the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going. And so we've got that word miracle again by another non-Christian scientist who's saying, we really can't explain how this happened. We just know somehow we're here and we're assuming and they are assuming that it's as a result of the evolutionary process. And in fact, Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, says, God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. Verse 25 says, God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. God created the firsts of everything, and then he put a plan in place. We might call it the law of biogenesis today, where life comes from other life not from other chemical means, not from spontaneous generation. That's not what we see. That's not what the evidence points to. The evidence says life comes from life. And that first spark of life, I believe, had to come from God Almighty. I want to look at another concept about, in, in looking at this evidence for created life, it's called irreducible complexity. Irreducible, irreducible complexity is the principle that if a biological system is so complex that it requires all of its parts in order to function, then it could not have arisen through evolution because there are no gradual or transition phases. Now, that's a lot of words. Here's what this means. It's essentially natural selection, right? If this is true, in each generation of an organism that is evolving, so to speak, there are going to be small variations that take place, small changes. Natural selection says those changes that do not benefit the organism will be selected out 
and it will be removed from future generations or evolutions of that organism. Uh, changes that or variations that are helpful or beneficial to the organism will be retained and kept for future generations. Okay? Natural selection, that's the process of evolution that the theory of evolution is based upon. All right, so irreducible complexity. Let's take the eye, for example. The eye is extremely complex. It has over 2 million working parts. Get my notes here. The eye allows you to not only view objects, but to see depth, color, size, and detail. The eye works by refracting and focusing light onto the retina. When light strikes the retina, millions of rods, which are responsible for night vision, convert the light into electrical impulses, which are sent to the brain. The brain then translates what it receives from the optic nerves so that we can understand what it is that we're seeing. The retina also contains millions of cones that are used for bright light vision and color perception. There are approximately 17 times more rods than cones, about 120 million rods and 7 million cones in the retina of each eye. Now think about this. Here's the point of irreducible complexity. The eye only serves a purpose when all of those complex parts of the eye are all working together in unison. So the eye at any other stage, other than fully formed, would not be beneficial or helpful to the organism. So let's assume for a second that evolution is true. And you've got an organism with no eyes, no, no way to see at all. The first generation of an eye, the first variation is going to do nothing. They're not going to be able to see. The second generation, the third variation, the one millionth variation, if it doesn't include every single part of the full complex eyeball, it's not going to help the organism. And natural selection would say those variations that aren't helpful are going to be selected out. Okay, so the point is there are some organisms and uh, parts of the body like the eye that are so complex that it would have been impossible for natural selection to have allowed those to form over millions and millions of years because all of those transitionary parts of the eye's process would have done nothing for the organism and it would have been weeded out. So the only way that it's possible for evolution to be true and the eye to exist is if periodically, every once in a while, evolution takes forward. And there's one big, massive evolution generation that takes place and you go from no eyeball Fully complex eyeball, one change and one variation, which flies in the face of evolution and natural selection and all of those things that science uh, would say is true. So Charles Darwin himself recognized this contradiction. He actually has a chapter in his book, The Origin of the Species, that's called Difficulty with the Theory, and he mentions the eye. He says, to, to suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. So you've got the founder of the theory of evolution that's saying, I recognize the eye doesn't work with, with natural selection and with evolution. And yet those types of difficulties are passed over. And somehow this theory of evolution that has massive problems that can't possibly be right or be true all of that's glossed over, and as a society, seemingly, we have taken this theory and turned it into supposed fact. And I want you to recognize tonight that it's not. It's not fact. It's a theory, and it's a theory that's wrong, and that has massive problems. But you know how the eye could have been formed? By God 
creating them. Dr. Rick Oliver, that I remember how frustrated I became when as a young atheist I examined specimens under the microscope. I would often walk away and try to convince myself that I was not seeing examples of extraordinary design, but merely the product of some random, unexplained mutation. Here's a former evolutionist, an atheist who became a Christian because of the evidence he was seeing as he studied biology and organisms, and he's telling himself day after day, it's not designed, it's not designed, it's not designed, it's not designed, until finally he could not continue to lie to himself. He said, it's designed. He became a believer in God because of what he saw. Proverbs 20, verse 12 says, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord hath made even both of them. I believe that, and I believe that's the explanation for how we have such a complex uh, piece of our body, such as the eye. I want to read you a couple of uh, evolutionist admissions. Richard Dawkins, an evolutionary biologist, said, Of course we can't prove that there isn't a God. Uh, we know that Stephen Hawking in his book basically came to the conclusion that Hey, we can say we don't need God at all, but Dr. Dawkins at least is saying, well, we can't prove that there's not one. Scott Todd, a biology professor, said even if all the da uh, data points to an intelligent designer, such a hypothesis is excluded from science because it is not naturalistic. Now, there's a window into the background you don't get to see very often of an evolutionist that's saying, hey, even if we're seeing evidence, these are the ones, I suppose, that aren't like Dr. Rick Oliver who said, I'm going to become a believer because of what I'm seeing. There are some that don't say that, but they say, hey, we've got to hide this, and we've got to just come up with naturalistic explanations, even if the data is pointing us somewhere else. Richard Lewontin, an evolutionary biologist, said, we take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated commitment to materialism. We are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. I don't know about you, but that bothers me. Because regardless of your belief system, I believe that if you're truly searching for truth, you're not going to exclude any possibility. You're going to look at the evidence for what it is, and you're going to try to come to the right conclusion. But we've got some folks, unfortunately, in the scientific community that recognize the evidence for what it is, but are saying we're going to come up with materialistic, humanistic, naturalistic explanations for everything because we're not going to allow God a foothold in this. What they've done is they've closed their mind to the possibility of God. And if you close your mind to the possibility of God, then you have to go to the absurd. You have to go to the far reaches of logic in order to make this all work. You have to say somehow we exist here after 14 billion years because of an explosion no one can really explain the beginning of, and we exist here as human beings after 600 million years of evolving out of a single-cell organism that was sparked out of chemicals in a primordial pool that all the evidence really says can't happen, but somehow that happens, and we've got to believe that because we can't allow God to get part of the equation. I just want you to know, regardless of where you stand tonight, if you want to know what's true and what's real and what's right, you've got to have an open mind. You've got to be willing to see the evidence for what it is and then make the logical conclusion based upon that. 2 Peter 3, verse 5 through 7 says, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved at a fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. I thought about this verse 
as I was thinking about those evolutionist admissions, because unfortunately there are some people that are willingly ignorant. I'm asking you folks tonight not to be willingly ignorant, but to let the evidence speak to you. Now we could talk about a whole lot more. We just don't have time. We could talk about the law of entropy, how everything is declining down into ultimate destruction. We could talk about DNA programming and the amazing programming that goes on inside our bodies. We could talk about transitional stages of evolution, the missing link that's still never been found. We could talk about human consciousness and the fact that science still can't explain how it is that our consciousness is seeded into our brains. We could talk about so many more evidences, but we just don't have time. The last thing I want to cover with you for just a couple of minutes before we close is some examples of proven biblical science. Because we've talked a lot about the current issues related to the, the origin of our universe and the origin of human life. But you know, throughout time, there have been a lot of other scientific issues, a lot of things that mainstream science taught that eventually we figured out the Bible was right all along. I want to give you a few of those. In 1882, there was an evolutionist and biologist named Hubert Spencer that gave the world five scientific categories by which all natural phenomena could be divided. Time, force, energy, space, and matter. Those five. Now in Genesis chapter 1, in the first verse of the first book of the Bible, it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning there's your time. God, there's your force created. There's your energy. The heaven, there's your space. And the earth, there's your matter. This was written by Moses in about 1400 B.C. And all five of those elements that thankfully we had Dr. Hubert Spencer in the 1800s to let us know that all natural phenomena could be divided into those five. Because in the first verse of the first book of the Bible, we see all five of those represented in the creations. Amazing. Claudius Ptolemy in 168 AD counted 1,056 stars in the sky. And though he did not claim that to be the total number, it became the widely accepted belief among astronomers and scientists. So we've got about, you know, 2,000 years ago, 1,900 years ago or so, Scientists are looking up into the stars. They're counting the stars. They're, okay, 1,056. That's how many stars there are that exist. Now, long before this, there are verses, which we're going to get to in a moment because I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, 1,500 years later or so, let's do this first. 1,500 years later, there's a man by the name of Galileo. You've heard of him that comes onto the scene. And he uses his telescope and he peers into the stars. And guess what he sees? Not 1,056. He sees an innumerable number of stars, and he says the galaxy is, in fact, nothing but a conjuries of innumerable stars grouped together in clusters. So what the naked eye was perceiving as one star, he, through zooming in through the telescope, is able to see that's actually many stars. And what is even more remarkable, the stars, which have been called nebulous by every astronomer to this time, turn out to be groups of very small stars arranged in a wonderful manner. Galileo did a lot for astronomy and looking into the stars, but I want us to recognize that there are a couple of verses in Scripture that talk about the stars, that were written long before that 168 AD date. Genesis 15, verse 5, which was written by Moses in about 1400 BC, says he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. This is God talking to Abraham about his descendants. Now I want us to think through this, all right? If God doesn't exist, the Bible's just written by man, they would have had the same access to knowledge about how many stars there are as Ptolemy in 168 AD. And they could have counted them with their naked eye and come up with about a thousand stars. And so God's saying, as many stars as there are in the sky, that's how many descendants I'm going to give you. A thousand descendants? That's it? That's all I'm going to have? That's the size of my family? That's not very impressive. You know what is impressive, though? An innumerable number of stars. If he says, when he says, if thou be able to number them, that's what he's saying. You can't number them. It's innumerable. And that's how many descendants you're going to have. Now, why would someone use this example 
God wasn't behind the scenes saying, there's an innumerable number of stars, just like Galileo eventually uh, proved. In Jeremiah 33, verse 22, also Jeremiah wrote this about 580 BC, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered. Now that's contrary to science. Science says there's 1,056 stars in the sky, and we believe science over Christianity, over the Bible. Turns out the Bible was right all along. The host of heaven cannot be numbered. Here's another one. For the past 3,000 years, a process called bloodletting has been practiced uh, and was only discredited as recently as the late 19th century. George Washington is said to have died this way in 1799. He contracted a disease, and the doctors thought that the best course of action was to drain the blood out of his body in order to remove the infection. Um, unfortunately, draining the blood from his body killed him. Um, and, and we can see that, and we think that's silliness now in 2022, but that was a major medical scientific practice to do that has long since been debunked and, and disproven uh, as not at all a good thing or effective to do. Uh, but it's interesting that me, all the way back in the Old Testament, uh, Moses wrote Leviticus 17 and verse 11 talking about sacrifices, animals that were being sacrificed, and the reason why that sacrifice was acceptable before God was because the life of the flesh is in the blood. The blood carries the life animal. And the same thing, of course, is true for us. The life is in the blood. Drain the blood out of our bodies, we're going to die. Not a good practice to do, and yet that was a major scientific medical practice all the way up until the 19th century. Aristotle in 384 BC was the first to offer evidence of a spherical earth. Eratosthenes estimated the earth's circumference in about 276 to 194 BC. Uh, Ptolemy advanced many logical arguments supporting a spherical earth, and it wasn't until 1519 to 1522 that Ferdinand Magellan's circumnavigation of the Earth finally proved the spherical nature of the Earth. Now, unfortunately for Magellan, he actually didn't get to finish the trip. Uh, his, his first mate had to finish that. But that trip proved, finally, that the Earth was not flat, but it was a sphere. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22, written by Isaiah in 740 to 680 B.C., long before any of these guys even proposed a spherical earth, the Bible reads, it is he that sitteth upon the circle earth. There's a passage in Job that says that God hangs the earth in nothing or on nothing. Uh, there were a lot of beliefs about the earth being uh, on the back, carried on the back of a turtle or a strong man or things like that. The reality is the Bible's had it right all along. It's hanging in the middle of space and it's spherical and designed not flat. Matthew Maury in the 1800s is commonly known as the father of oceanography. He was among the first to discover and chart systematic ocean currents. And his research was inspired by a Bible verse, Psalm 8, verse 8, that says, The fowl of the air, the fish, the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. This was written by King David through inspiration in about 1970 B.C. Now, how in the world would King David, if God's not behind this, know that in the depths of the ocean there are paths in the sea, what we would call ocean currents today? Matthew Mari read this verse and said, I'm going to go see if there are. And guess what? There are. And the Bible was proven right once again. Omer in 800 BC illustrated the belief that most of the water in the rivers originated from underneath the earth. Greek scholars about 300 years later speculated that some of the water in rivers may be attributed to rain. Bartholomew of England in 1200 AD and Leonardo da Vinci in 1500 AD believed that rain alone was insufficient to feed rivers and that underground water was the main contributor to river water. Okay, so we've got all the way up to 1500s where they believe that rivers are being fed from underwater sources, not from rain. 
Bernard Palissy in 1580 was the first published thinker to assert that rainfall alone was sufficient for the maintenance of rivers. Pierre Perrault in 1674 tested and proved Palissy's theories, and these beliefs were still not accepted into mainstream science until the early 19th. All right, now this is simple. This is what we would call the water cycle, the hydrological cycle, right? Out of the ocean, evaporates into the clouds, the clouds carry it over onto land, and then release the rain. And you do that enough over time throughout the earth, all over the earth, and that rainfall and that consistent cycle is enough to keep the waters in the rivers and the rivers flowing. There doesn't need to be an underground system. We know that now. We didn't know that science-wise until the 1500s. And yet all the way back in 950 BC, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 7, the scripture says, All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. Sounds like the hydrological cycle to me. Amos 9 verse 6 says, It is he that buildeth his stories in the heaven, and hath founded his troop in the earth. He that calleth for the waters of the sea, poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Both of these passages written hundreds, thousands of years before science caught up, and yet the Bible was proved right once again. One more. Charles Darwin in 1871, one of the first in recent history to propose the common descent of all human races. Now, he obviously believed in evolution, but he believed that we came from a common ancestor. Uh, the debate in anthropology had swung in favor of monogenism by the mid-20th century. Previous to that, the belief was that different pockets of human beings had evolved in different areas, and so we did not all have one common human ancestor. Now, obviously, the Bible, we believe the Bible, we do all have a common ancestor, that being Adam and Eve, and then ultimately Noah and his family. Uh, but Alan Wilson, Rebecca Can, and Mark Stone King worked in the 1980s on what's called the mitochondrial Eve hypothesis. And after their DNA studies, they concluded that modern human populations had diverged recently from a single population. Now, they're not necessarily attributing that, right, to the biblical story. They're just confirming that the DNA proves we all have a single common. So, question is, who is that ancestor? Is it one uh, organism that evolved from Neanderthal into human being, and then all the rest of the humans came from that one first human being? Or is that first human being, Adam, that God created in the garden so long ago? Acts 17, verse 26, long before science came around and recognized that all of us have a common ancestry, the Bible said, and hath made of one blood all nations of men were to dwell on all the face of the earth hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. The is we're all connected. We're all human beings created by God, no matter what color, no matter what race, no matter what culture, no matter where we come from. We're all the same. We're created by God, loved by God. God sent his son Jesus to die for all of us. And it's a wonderful, amazing thing that God has done for us that once again, science has proven the Bible right. Jonathan Wells, an American molecular biologist, he says, when you analyze all of the most current affirmative evidence from cosmology, physics, astronomy, biology, and so forth, the positive case for an intelligent designer becomes absolutely compelling. And John Lennox, the professor of mathematics from the University of Oxford, I love this quote. He says, nonsense remains nonsense, talked by world-famous scientists. So let's remember that. Let's remember to look at the evidence, keep an open mind, and allow the conclusions that I believe are the logical conclusions, and I hope I've shown you that tonight. That there is a creator, there is a designer, there is someone behind everything that we see, and that is God Almighty. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven 
What do you believe today? Are you a Christian tonight? You believe that God created everything and that ultimately he sent his son Jesus to die for you? I do. If you're here and you've not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ and been baptized into his body, tonight is the night you need to make that choice. If you're here and you are a member of his body, but we can help you in some other way, we'd invite either of you to come sit on our front pew as we stand and sing. Thanks for joining our sermon series podcast today. For more, check us out on YouTube or come worship with us on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings.